1: party show and uh the reason we have a lone voice today uh my name is Ron Esplin, and uh I am the co host of uh the artifacty show however the co uh, part of the um the the pair of us uh, which is Andy Cook of course isn't able to come today because of um, a number of factors which we won't even go into, uh, and I know he'd love to be here. However, I'm uh, flying solo today, and uh, that will uh, work very well, but we're not we're going to mention Andy, of course, because Andy's such a great guy, and of course, uh, he is the um, uh, the proprietor of the wonderful art shop known as Art Zone. What a great name that is for an art shop. Art Zone, it's sort of arts, if you roll it into one word, it's Art Own. So if you're an artist, so you want a shop that's going to be your very own, Art's Own is the one to go to. And uh, if you want to know where it is, well, the Zone is in 57 Hanover Street in Dunedin, and in case you're uh, listening from outside uh, the uh, city, uh, it's four seven seven o two one one. That's their phone number. I'm going to repeat that: four double seven o two one one. And why would you want the phone number, Karaki? You'd have every reason, any interest in art whatsoever, all the art materials you'd you'd care to want to buy, uh, or provide for yourself as a, a practicing artist would be. Found at Art Zone in Hanover Street, uh, and what probably notable amongst those is framing, uh, and he he is a trained framer. He's got all the stuff there; it's just amazing, all the equipment, and uh, he does a wonderful job of framing. And he does all of my framing, and he does all of my wife's framing because, believe it or not, my wife uh, Julie Woods, she's uh, has the pseudonym uh, that blind woman. And that's um, for a good reason. She is actually blind, but does that stop her from doing stuff that you frame? No way. And she has actually done what we call braille art, uh, which uh, spells things out in braille, which makes very interesting um, art works. Uh, you can also get, of course, all the, all the paints, acrylics, oils, uh, watercolor, inks, easels, easels. Yes, yeah, that's right. You, know, you need easels, the ones that you can take outside and uh, do your uh, outdoor painting uh, and uh, you can have them inside too. Of course, a good solid uh, easel is pretty useful, uh, particularly for um, uh, acrylics and oils, I would have thought. However, um, I've used easels, at, especially when I'm uh, outside uh, doing plain air painting. Uh, and uh, the... Um, Uh, Just a a wealth of art materials uh, there at uh, Art Zone. And uh, if you come across a little dog uh, that that comes and greets you, a lovely little dog, his name is Rocky. just want you to know that uh, because he's not dangerous, because he's quite a small size. And uh, that's not only that, because he's a very good-natured little dog. He is. Uh, So um, that's good. And uh, so, if you see him, just say hello, Rocky, and give him a little pat, and he'll be as happy as Rocky. Uh, so that's um, Art Zone. Some the last time we uh, met was we talked was when we talked about framing because uh, our man uh, uh, Andy is a uh, you know that's one of his specialities. Uh, And it's probably quite a good reason for us to know a bit more about uh, frames. Uh, Just for interest's sake, there's no copyright on frames. Uh, One frame can look like another, which has resulted in many frames looking exactly like earlier frame designs. Frames aren't just for hanging and complementing your favourite art or photo. They are also uh, key to protecting the work Uh, and many frames offer not only protection from dirt and dust, but glazings uh, offer uh, UV protection from the sun. And uh, if you uh, are a watercolorist, or um, maybe you do work in pencil, uh, although pencil actually isn't really affected by the sun, so uh, I should uh, really correct that because it's a very good idea to sign your work uh, with a graphite pencil. Why, I hear you ask? A good question. Glad you asked that. The um, pencil does not fade under the UV light, uh, whereas if you were to sign it uh, with a pen, uh, that does uh, a, a ballpoint pen or uh, uh, maybe not so much some of the more Indian ink type uh, ink. Uh, but uh, you, you just get something you sign it with ballpoint pen, it will fade. So, um, uh, you can ask for UV, well, don't sign with a ballpoint pen, sign with a pencil, Uh, but uh, you can ask for UV, watercolours can uh, fade, Uh, they're less likely to fade these days because the watercolours, the pigments are so much more permanent than they ever were before, Uh, so I don't worry too much about uh, framing UV unless it's absolutely uh de rigueur you know it's a sort of a, a light uh, a light painting and uh, you know that uh, it's uh, at risk of uh, over time uh under uv light particularly if it's going to be in that kind of a placement then uh, ask for uv glass and uh, then uh, that that will ensure that it lasts um what else do we need oh yes uh, you know van gogh once said a picture without a frame is like a soul without a body. You know, they've got some pretty pithy, interesting things that uh, artists say over time. And uh, it's nice to hear, uh, way back from the past, a bit of wisdom from uh, a famous, uh, probably the the most famous artist. I'm taking my life in my hands by saying that, but he's certainly uh, very, very famous. Early artwork of mummies, thousands of years old, has shown how Egyptians carved frames into the same piece of wood as their paintings. Uh, In Renaissance Italy, uh, the establishment of frames themselves as works of art uh, were um, uh, introduced and they featured elaborately within altars and other icons when often the church was the place where most paintings were happening. And uh, to house religious figures commissioned by the church, they wanted to... uh, Uh, separate each uh, piece of uh, art from uh, others. Uh, As uh, wealthy estates began to commission artworks for their homes, uh, that brought about the need to create frames as functional portable pieces, such as those uh, that you see in the modern day. Uh, They were produced by furniture builders rather than artists and architects, and that meant that you could uh, carry your paintings around. Um, the Fine Art Trade Guild was established to permit, develop, and inform the picture industry, and it now continues to set standards and guidelines for a prints and picture framing industry. Uh, the world's largest photo frame, now wait for this, has now finished construction in Dubai at 150 by 93 meters. <laughs> You can look through and see the old and new Dubai, apparently. Uh, The largest collection of picture frames is owned by Lara Khoury from the United Arab Emirates. She's collected 2,214 empty frames since 1992. I don't know how many I've collected, but um, uh, I'd sure like to fill all the empty ones that I've got. Uh, Picture frames can be custom made. They come in a huge range of colours and materials and styles nowadays, Uh, filling up a whole room as your central focal piece or blending into uh, your decor with loving memories. So that's just a a sort of a footnote uh, from our discussion about frames uh, that we had the last time you heard us on the air uh, now, what's going on in um, in Dunedin at the moment? Well, we always like to uh, look at what's happening in the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, and in the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, there's quite a lot going on. Um, you might just get the 5th of April, it might have passed by the time you hear the repeat of this broadcast, but Kote Wai He Wai Ora is a free talk, and it's re-establishing the practice to embed connection and co- consolidate tradition. A free talk led by Tumai Cassidy uh, from the Kaitahu Tahu and uh, with Paulette Tamati Elif, Kai Te Pahi, and Kai Ruahikiki, and uh, they are presenting an association with the association with the exhibition uh, Paimanu, uh, Te a landing place, at uh, the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Auditorium. Uh, There's a maximum capacity of 40 in the space uh, under the current red light setting, so make sure you arrive early if you want to have have a place. And it's on Tuesday, the 5th of April, 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. So uh, it won't keep you too long. You'll be filled up with uh, interesting and uh, relevant uh, information, and then you can go back and have your dinner and... um, uh, pass it through your mind as you are enjoying your afternoon or evening repast. Right, now what else have we got to talk about? Well, uh, the Otago Art Society, uh, always busy doing interesting things, and um, uh, the Otago Art Society is uh, having an exhibition called Pink. The Pink Exhibition, what a good idea. So everything's pink, and uh, the... um, I think it's uh, there's a hundred maximum people allowed. Vaccine, parson, masks are required, and uh, it's going to uh, well. Uh, it's it's open now, uh, so uh, that was going to be good. But the uh, so the the idea was so you could just do anything you like. Uh, so uh, tissue paper, pink, white, and pink patterned wire. Uh, uh, wired to pick together pieces. In fact the centerpiece is a lovely, wonderful wild pink uh piece uh, that is three dimensional and uh, well worth having a look at just uh, just for that. Um the all sorts of uh, um uh, the the mine boggles with uh, the extent of the pink uh, exhibition. And uh, everyone uh, just towed the line and uh, did work that um uh, that was uh, that, were, that, that was pink uh, the central theme as they say um if um everyone in um, in new zealand had a pink car uh would uh, new zealand be a pink car nation ha, 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 ha. there aren't many art uh, jokes but there you are that's one that come, comes racing back from the past um, let's see what else we can uh, uh, talk about. Dunedin Public Art Gallery, yes. And the Art Society, yes. And, of course, uh, there is there are a number of other galleries, uh, current exhibitions. Um, for instance, uh, the, um, uh, the death-defying Raimo Kuperinen, who's uh, in the Fringe Festival exhibition at PC Art, Port Chalmers. And uh, he's going to be there... Um, well uh you might just be a bit finishing, but don't worry too much there's always something happening at the um uh, p c art uh gallery out at port Chalmers uh what else have we got to um to uh, talk about here uh, oh yes the um uh, uh unveiling the stars uh, by uh, multiple narratives. And this is an exhibition from the works from the Dunedin Public Art Gallery collection uh, curated by Paimanu Nyaitahu, uh, Contemporary Visual Arts. And Paimanu's uh, perspectives sit alongside those of an additional group of contributors. So uh, that's uh, something that's really worth uh, having a look at. And uh, that highlights recent additions by Katya Banti, Jacinta Beckworth, Megan Brady, Paul Farris, Aidan Gerrity, Bridie Loney, Anne Marie uh, Milfieri, Francis Perry Hendandez, Bridget Ruiti, and Ed Ritchie and Ruahina Scott Fife. Great time to have a look at these uh, uh, work from experienced artists uh, and see them all together at the one time. That's the way to go. Uh, Okay, so what else have we got to talk about? Uh, well, um, I do want to just let you know about some interesting facts. These are five art facts. And uh, they, they're they very impressive uh, things to, to know about because um, these are things that uh, will catch you by surprise, I'll guarantee. Did you know that art used to be an Olympic event? Ah, the Olympic wasn't always about abs and doping scandals. The founder of the modern games, Baron Pierre de Coupardin, was enamored with the idea of the true Olympian being a talented artist and sports person. So, thanks to him, uh, between 1912 and 1948, medals were given out for sporting inspired masterpieces of architecture, music, painting, sculpture, and literature. Now, why have they dropped doing that for goodness, goodness sake? Um another thing about the, the uh, you know, interesting fact was that in the Louvre, yeah, the Louvre, you know, you know where the, the Louvre is. Uh, it's in France. And the Mona Lisa has her own mailbox in the Louvre because of all the love letters she receives. We're going to talk about uh, the Mona Lisa later on. Uh, so um, uh, hang fire for that. That's coming in today. Uh, But over the years, many have fallen prey to the portrait's limpid and burning eyes, leaving her offerings of flowers, poems and love notes. Uh, And uh, apparently, uh, artist Luke Maspero allegedly took his fervour for uh, Mona Lisa to a new high and then a low in 1852, diving off a hotel balcony because for years he had grappled desperately with her smile. I prefer to die. Oh, my goodness. That's taking it a bit too extreme. Uh, well, uh, another th- uh, interesting art fact is that the colour wheel predates the United States itself. Consider that. The US is one of the oldest modern democracies, and it's pretty amazing that Sir N- Isaac Newton invented the colour wheel in 1706 by refracting white sunlight into its six colours. The realisation that light alone was responsible for colour was a radical idea and the wheel proved especially useful for artists who could now easily observe the most effective colour complementation. So there we go, that's an amazing it's been around for so long and I would suggest that any artist out there uh, should um, uh, own a colour wheel or if they don't, um, get one because it, it really familiarizes yourself with the primary colors, the complementaries, and uh, et cetera, et cetera of the um, of the color wheel. Uh, now, here's a, an interesting but rather wild fact: Artist Willard Wiggin. Now, if you haven't heard that name before, it's actually uh, he he was a master of uh, making absolute tiny micro-sculptures. And believe it or not, they were so small that he once inhaled his own work. (laughs) He inhaled a painting? Well, not quite. Wigan's works are micro-sculptures, so tiny they must be viewed through a microscope. In creating his art, Wigan has to slow his heartbeat and work between pulses. The work he inhaled was Alice from Alice in Wonderland. But apparently she was even better when remade. Uh, I'm afraid she was never recovered. Uh, Now, a fifth um, uh, sort of uh, uh, arty-farty fact is that uh, in 2003, street artist Banksy stuck his own work to the wall in the Tate Modern Museum. Uh, it Unfortunately, it, it, he would have got away with it, it wasn't, if it wasn't for inadequate glue. <laughs> uh, but for a few hours anyway, Crime Watch UK has ruined the countryside for all of us, that was the title, it was hung in one of the world's most famous museums. It also inspired Andrzej Zobipan, a Polish art student, to a similar feat in 2005, where for three days... He successfully passed off his work as part of the National Museum's collection. Uh, I wonder how many of you would be able to get away with that Uh, um, sort of unusual uh, prank, I suppose you could say. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's time to uh, play a bit of music and it's uh, a bit of relevant music, I think. So let's play it right now, eh? Starry,
0: starry night Soothed beneath the artist's loving hand Now I understand What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen a silver thorn, a bloody rose Lie crushed and broken on the virgin snow Now I think I know What you tried to say to me and How you suffered for your sanity and How you tried to set them free they would not listen, they're not listening still. Perhaps they never will.
1: How beautiful is that? Don McLean with his uh, beautiful bit of music. Uh, starry, starry night. Referring, of course... to the painting Starry Night, uh, but also uh, really referring to uh, the mental state of uh, Van Gogh uh, and uh, how his struggles to remain a dedicated artist despite the vicissitudes of uh, the times when you maybe wouldn't be able to sell very much. Uh, For some time I uh, thought that um, Van Gogh only ever sold one piece of uh, his work and uh, I understood that Tao, uh, his brother, uh, actually, um, uh, well, he bought it, but he facilitated the sale, was uh, the, the story that I'd heard. However, I've since been uh, reading a, a wonderful um, uh, catalogue of, uh, of facts and, and um, uh, stories about Van Gogh, and uh, that is by a man called Martin Bailey. Now Martin Bailey, Bailey is considered to be an expert on uh, Van Gogh and he's written quite a number of books uh, on, um, on Van Gogh. Um, best-selling books, I might say. The, uh, uh, the, among the titles are The Sunflowers Are Mine, the story of Van Gogh's masterpiece, uh, Studio of the South, Van Gogh in Provence, uh, Starry Night, Van Gogh at the Asylum, Uh, Bailey wrote uh, Living with Vincent Van Gogh The Homes and Landscapes That Shape the Artist Uh, There's um, The Illustrated uh, Provence Letters of Van Gogh uh, and among other uh, interesting uh, pieces of work Uh, and um, a man who can write so many books about uh, Van Gogh, you have to take notice of him (laughs) I certainly did and uh, among the uh, the uh, controversies that have surrounded Vincent van Gogh has been uh, the question of his death. Uh the um understanding of many is that he committed suicide and uh the uh theory of many others is uh, that uh, a young man uh shot him. Uh, now uh, I've seen this these ideas espoused in different ways in film, uh, which you may have seen uh, in the past, uh, particularly one uh, which was uh, almost uh, like a a moving painting. Uh, They used uh, the style of uh, Vincent van Gogh uh, in uh, producing a moving picture. And in that uh, rendition, uh, the idea was that he had um, um, sustained a, a, a fatal injury, not instantly fatal a fatal injury from uh, a, a young man who uh, who shot him um, and some of the extraordinary things that he did I guess uh, like for instance did he cut off his hair well yes he did um, uh, but uh, anyway uh, there are ten reasons oh, I always say I'm going to give you 10 reasons why the murder story is actually a myth and this is according to um, Martin Bailey And uh, uh, Martin Bailey uh, really is a long-standing correspondent and expert on on the artist Vincent van Gogh. So um, uh, uh, the question um, about did he commit suicide, he says that uh, the evidence suggests it was actually the artist who fired the fatal shot. But to just uh, extrapolate that a little further... um, he, you know, his extraordinary life was always exciting, and it's uh, that's given uh, uh, excited just as much interest as his art. Uh, the The idea that uh, Van Gogh's death was murder first um, surfaced seriously in two thousand and eleven. Two American writers, Stephen Nuffay and Gregory White Smith. They wrote that Van Gogh was shot in the abdomen on the 27th of July 1890 by 16-year-old René Secretin, a summer visitor in Auvers-sur-Oise who taunted the artist. Van Gogh managed to stagger back to his inn, according to this story, dying uh, in two days later from his wounds. The two authors based their theory on their imaginative interpretation of an interview that Sikritan gave in 1957, a few months before his death. And uh, they argued that um, Van Gogh welcomed death and therefore he, he the unexpected shooting. He then protected Sekritan by claiming it was suicide. This is ac- according to uh, Nafay and Smith. And uh, the murder manslaughter theory was subsequently taken up in different ways in two acclaimed films the painted animation Loving Vincent, which I have uh, just recently just referred to earlier, and artist Julian Schnabel's At Eternity's Gate in 2018. However, the traditional view that Van Gogh shot himself is correct. He was not killed by Secretan, it's just another myth. And uh, we'll give you some uh, reasons why uh, it was suicide. Vincent's doctor himself believed it was suicide. A few, a few hours after the shooting, Vincent's doctor, Paul Gachet wrote to the artist's brother, Theo Van Gogh, to break the news he has wounded himself. Dr. Gachet had inspected the wound and spoken with Vincent. Had there been anything to suggest possible foul play, he would presumably not have let the matter rest. Two weeks after Vincent's death, he wrote again to Theo, explicitly using the word suicide. Now, as a second uh, um, point of um, fact, Theo believed, or Theo as we (coughs) believe he was called, uh, believed it was suicide. Theo, who rushed to his brother's bedside and conversed with him during his final 12 hours, was convinced it was suicide. Three days after Vincent's death, he wrote an emotionally charged letter to his wife, Jo. One of his last words was, This is how I wanted to go, and it took a few moments, and then it was over. <laughs> I don't know he said, how do you write that? Uh, and he found the peace he hadn't been able to find on earth. Had taya any reason to believe his beloved brother might have been shot by someone else, he would surely have informed the police. So there, there's a a second compelling reason why it was in fact a suicide. Even his friends believed it was suicide. Emile Bernard, Van Gogh's closest friend, attended the funeral and spoke with Dr. Gachet and Theo. Dr. Gachet told Bernard that he'd hoped to save his patient's life, but Vincent had warned him that, then I'll have to do it over again. That's from the um, artist's own uh, mouth. Two days after the funeral... Bernard wrote a detailed account to the critic Albert Aurier. He killed himself. On Sunday evening, he went into the countryside around Auvers, placed his easel against a hay sack and went behind the chateau and fired a revolver, shot at himself. Vincent had done it in complete lucidity with a wish to die. So there you are. Now, if that that isn't enough um, evidence for you, Paul Gauguin believed it was suicide, and Paul Ga- Gauguin was a close friend of uh, Vincent van Gogh. In Gauguin's uh, memoir, Avant et après, he wrote that van Gogh shot himself in the stomach. Although Gauguin was in Brittany at the time, he remained in touch with Vincent's circle of friends. Gauguin knew van Gogh well, very well from their time together in the Yellow House in Arles, where the collaboration had come to an abrupt end with the ear incident, and he was only too aware of his friend's fragile mental condition. So, who else believed it was suicide? Well, the police believed it was suicide. Now, no police records about the shooting actually survive, but Bernard also informed Royer that the innkeeper, Arthur Ravoux, had told him about the gendarmes who came to his bed to reproach him for an act for which he was responsible. His daughter, Adeline Ravoux, who was 13 at the time of the incidents, later reported that her father had often spoken about Van Gogh. The artist had told the police, What I have done is nobody else's business. I am free to do what I like with my own body. So there we are, that's his own words. Surely the police would have followed up if they had harbored any suspicions of foul play. Adeline even named one of the gendarmes as Région although her testimony was given in the 1950s, more than 60 years after the events. Subsequent research revealed that an Emile Régiment had indeed once served as a gendarme in the neighbouring village of Marie-sur-Oise. So, um, if you are not convinced yet, we've got more evidence, folks. The church believed it was suicide. The very church, Henri Tessier, the Catholic priest in Ovea, refused to allow the funeral service to be held in his church or to provide the parish hearse to carry Van Gogh's body to the cemetery. Tessier was presumably concerned that the Protestant artist had sinned by committing suicide. Thayer then needed to amend the printed funeral invitations. And that was the way he uh, carried out... uh, a, a kind of a, um, a, an untruth about uh, how he had met his end. Uh, as if that's not enough, Vincent had actually tried to kill himself the year before. In April 1899, 1889 rather, four months after mutilating his ear, Vincent had written to Theo, if I was without your friendship, I would be sent back with remorse to suicide, and however cowardly I am, I would end up going there. A few months later he tried to poison himself by eating his paints and turpentine but fortunately his doctor saved him. A few days after his recovery Dr. Théophile Perron told Théo that Vincent's ideas of suicide have disappeared. Vincent himself reported that I am trying to get better now like someone who having wanted to commit suicide finding the water too cold tries to catch hold of the bank again. He was undoubtedly a vulnerable individual. Vincent faced a difficult time in the final months of his life. And in May 1890, after a year in the asylum just outside Saint-Rémy-de-Provence, Vincent moved north to the village of Auvers. Throughout his career, Théo had been his closest confidant and had provided a regular financial allowance. But Théo, an art dealer in Paris, had recently married and then had a son in January 1890, Vincent was therefore concerned that a wife and an infant would mean he might lose much of his brother's emotional and financial support. He was also worried about Tao's recent problems at work with the owners of the gallery. Although most of the time Vincent would cope with the challenges of his life, he was upset. Something pushed him over the edge in the afternoon of the 27th of July, presumably a recurrence of the mental condition that had suddenly led him to cut off most of his left here in the Yellow House. René Secretan, the purported killer, never confessed and indeed claimed he had left Orvea before the shooting. The only occasion on which Secretan publicly spoke about Van Gogh was in an interview published in the journal Esculape in 1957 when he was aged 82. This was just a few months before his death. Secretan never said he fired the shot instead saying Vincent had somehow got hold of a gun which had been in the young man's possession." Sekretan also had an apparent alibi since he claimed to have left Ovea some days before the shooting. Although there's no way of verifying his statements, there is nothing in the interview which represents prima facie uh, evidence that he might have been guilty of murder or manslaughter. In any case, it must be extremely rare for a victim fatally injured in the shooting by someone else to claim it was actually a suicide attempt. To add to the implausibility, why should Sekretan, if guilty have voluntarily given an interview about Van Gogh nearly 70 years afterwards at a time when he was under no suspicion. Well, there you are. And if that isn't enough, uh, apparently the gun has recently emerged uh, and it's further evidence for suicide. The corroded gun that is said to have killed Van Gogh was displayed and auctioned in Paris in June, fetching, wait for it, 162,500. Wouldn't that... um, so split your genes if you uh, committed suicide and uh, your, you know, the gun that you committed suicide uh, earned more money than a lot of your paintings. It had been found in around 1960 by a farmer, abandoned a field in the area where the artists of Bleed have suffered the wound. If it is the Van Gogh gun, which is very likely, although not certain, then its discovery near the surface of the ground suggests it was abandoned rather than hidden. And if it was Sikretan who had fired the fatal shot, then surely he would have hidden the weapon properly, perhaps by burying it more deeply or throwing it in the nearby river was. But if Van Gogh had pulled the trigger, he would have immediately fallen, dropping the gun. So there we are. The key people at the time believed Van Gogh had shot himself. Suicide was then condemned by the Catholic Church and regarded by society as wrong. Had Vincent's family and friends had any suspicion that someone else was responsible they surely would have voiced their concerns. And why point the finger at Secretan? The only substantive information on his links with Van Gogh comes from his 1957 interview in which he said nothing to suggest he was guilty of murder. What would be useful in determining whether it was suicide or murder would be forensic evidence about the nature of the wound. But there is little information. Information, Dr Gachet, who died in 1909, never spoke out about the wound during his lifetime. And the descriptions given after his death by his son were very brief on the colour of the skin, on the adjacent skin, its location on the body, and the angle of the shot. And these details have recently been subject to different interpretations. So the judgment has to be made, it seemed the more likely explanation. Should we accept Van Gogh's word that he had decided to end his life? Or does Secretan's interview suggest it was he who pulled the trigger? For me, uh, the answer is clear. As Tao put it so poignantly, Vincent then found the piece he hadn't been able to find on earth. Well, uh, I hope that's cleared it up for you, folks. Um, The um, uh, most interesting life of Van Gogh, indeed, and uh, probably the most uh, uh, well-known of all the artists. Uh, uh, And apparently uh, London's uh, Van Gogh self-portrait show is coming up, and it's going to be at the Courtauld in uh, London. If you're going there, there's a chance for you. Uh, and to see uh, f- um, 15 painted examples of Van Gogh's self-portraits. Now, that's an interesting uh, uh, prospect. Uh, and imagine he he painted 15 uh, self-portraits. Uh, apparently, there have been other uh, exhibitions of his Paris self portraits, uh, but this is the only one to include examples from Provence. The show is organized by the Cultural's crea- crea- uh, curator, Karen Serres. Uh, apparently, the international loans uh, arrived in London for the installation, and uh, six of the f- uh, probably his uh, the favorite works, uh, uh, is, is I'll describe them, a self portrait with felt hat. Which was uh, apparently uh, December between December eighteen eighty six and eighty seven, and uh, credited by the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, uh, self portrait with felt hat, hat is one of Van Gogh's first self portraits. At the age of thirty three, he painted just under a year after his arrival in Paris, wearing a cravat and a smart hat, he appeared as a well dressed Parisian. He w- could well be a successful businessman rather than a Bohemian artist. He suspects he didn't normally dre- uh, dress like this in his studio, but the self-portrait shows how he then wanted to be perceived. Um, what else have we got? Oh, well, uh, a, a very interesting thing does uh, emerge uh, about uh, that particular painting. Uh, an X-ray of self-portrait with felt hat uh, depicts a nude standing woman underneath. So obviously... Uh, Van Gogh, uh, you know, uh, this uh, revelation that underneath that self portrait is a standing female nude uh, exp- is explained by the fact that being short of canvas, he uh, reused an earlier composition to work on an image of himself. And uh, the, that woman was apparently, uh, possibly, a, a model at Fernand Cormon's studio, where Van Gogh had studied a few months earlier or if she has posed uh, privately for the artist, we don't know. It was uh, painted on, uh, the self-portrait was painted on top, and it stayed in the family of Brother Tao and eventually went to the Van Gogh Museum. Um, then there's Van Gogh's self-portrait in spring 1887. Um, uh, it's at the Art Institute of Chicago, and uh, it could hardly be more different in style. This It reflects Van Gogh's, discovery of the Impressionists' work and their followers after his arrival in Paris. And it's painted with uh, Impressionist and pointillist technique. Many of you will have seen it. The background is composed of complementary toned dots of blue and orange with dashes on the clothing and uh, the longer lines on the face. The result is a picture which positively dances with colour and it was so much uh, uh, like the later Van Gogh's um, the self-portrait with a straw hat from Detroit uh, demonstrates what a difference a simple item of clothing can make. Uh, with a straw hat to protect him from the summer heat, Van Gogh presented himself as a working artist with his blue garment suggestive of a smock. Although painted less than six months after the Chicago self-portrait, this work is quite different in style. Gone are the pointless marks to be replaced by short brush strokes narrower in the face. So what we're talking about really the point list was little little dabs of paint uh, put on by the brush. And uh, these were uh true brush strokes, uh, brush strokes uh, a bit more um in the uh in the way of uh the um uh the artists uh, from Paris. So um uh, the um He's got a narrower face, so I don't know whether that uh, conveys something about his health. And uh, Van Gogh continues to revel in complementary colours, setting his orange beard against the blue clothing and, of course, the yellow hat. Uh, He gave that painting to a young Parisian artist friend, Emile Bernard. When they say that uh, Van Gogh didn't uh, sell many pieces, works of art... um, in truth, he um, he used his art uh, to make a living, not by necessarily selling them, but by exchanging them for the uh, 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 things that he needed to live. You know, maybe parts, uh, pieces of furniture, or um, and food, of course, which uh, he was given a bit of an allowance by his brother Teo. But uh, it wouldn't be sufficient, uh, I would think, for him to uh, to live relatively com- comfortably. Uh, Bernard, who greatly valued this self-portrait, finally sold it in 1910 when he needed the money. In 1922, it became the first Van Gogh to uh, go to a US museum, being bought by the Detroit Institute of Arts for $4,200. Oh, oh, that was a steal, that's for sure. And that will be in uh, this exhibition at the Courtauld. Then uh, we have uh, Van Gogh's self-image as a painter and was probably the last picture that Van Gogh completed in Paris immediately before he departed for Arles. Once again, it provides further evidence of the astonishing progress during his two years in the French capital. Van Gogh showed himself working on a canvas which is hidden from our view. He includes his palette, with two little pots for oil and turpentine, along with seven brushes. Well, there you are. If you want to be a Van Gogh uh, copyist, uh, you've got the whole deal there. And the palette contains the complementary pairs: blue-orange, red-green, and yellow-purple. There you are. There's a um, uh, a uh, what do you call it? A limited palette. And the limited palette uses three uh, um, the three uh, primaries, and the three complementaries. Not a bad way to go. Uh, I, I've uh, been examining my own paintings just lately, and uh, I can't believe I do use the three. Uh, um, the three um, uh, primaries and mix them uh, as required very, very seldom uh, pick up any paint uh, that has been uh, mixed to make uh, uh, any of the other uh, colours. So Vincent described his self-portrait as showing him with a very red beard, quite unkempt. His pursed lips and sunken, darkened eyes suggests a certain melancholy. And most striking is the determined gaze staring out beyond the easel. It's almost manic. He worked on this self-portrait intimately for several weeks, a, pretty, a long time for an artist who could complete a picture in a single day. And pleased with the final result, he proudly signed it an orange red on the back of the stretcher frame in the painting. That's you know the the frame, the str- frame of the stretcher that he painted into the painting. Vincent left the picture behind in Paris as a parting gift to his brother Theo. The evening before his departure, he and his friend Bernard arranged several of their favorite paintings on easels as a remembrance for Theo, almost certainly including <coughs> this particular self-portrait. And its uh, paint was still wet at that time, uh, which is not unusual because uh, uh, oil paint takes quite a while to uh, to dry. Uh, in this painting, uh, Vincent later wrote he'd been seeking a deeper likeness than that of the photographer. Taya's wife, Jo Bonga, later praised it as the self-portrait that was most like him. She never sold the painting, and it later ended up in the Van Gogh Museum collection. So uh, (coughs) uh, pardon me, Uh, Van Gogh's uh, self-portrait with a bandaged ear. I've seen that one. It's in uh, in the Courtauld Gallery in London. Uh, and interestingly, uh, since the gallery specializes in holding medium-sized shows based around key works in its collection, the painting was bought by Samuel Courtauld in 1928 for £10,000. Still an absolute steal in, in today's money. Van Gogh suffered a mental attack in Arles, and was, as we all know, he cut off most of his ear just before Christmas Eve 1888. Three weeks later, he was back at work, painting as intensively as ever, He completed two self-portraits, the one now at the Courtauld and another owned by the family of the late Greek shipping tycoon Stavros Niarchos. Self-portrait with bandaged ear predominantly shows his covered left ear, which appears in the painting on the other side, since he was using a mirror, uh, which is a bit of a trap for young players uh, when you're uh, painting yourself. Uh, portrait, you can always tell uh, that it's been been painted using a mirror because it's the reverse of uh, the actual uh, person that you're painting. Apparently it was a deliberate inclusion since he could easily have de- depicted the other side with the intact ear. So he's uh, almost uh, uh, recording the moment as if to say, oh, look at me, look what I did. Uh, he didn't have to paint a uh, self portrait at all at this time, so why did he? Well, the two self-portraits of the bandage year may well represent his attempt to come to terms with the trauma of what had occurred. Presenting his injury in a matter-of-fact way, he seems to have found it difficult to acknowledge what had happened in words, but he could attempt to do so through his art. The paintings could also be regarded as a plea for help. Um, oddly enough, in that painting, uh, the, there's an image painted in the wall, pin, or pinned to the wall behind him, and it's a self, and it uh, represents Van Gogh's admiration to the of the art of Japan, and that image is a geisha in a landscape. Uh, it's uh, pinned to the wall behind him in that painting uh, of uh, self portrait with a bandaged ear, and it's a modified version of the print Geishas in a landscape published by uh, published by Sato Tarakyu in the 1870s. Uh, Now, uh, Van Gogh's own copy of the print, complete with the pinhole damage in the corners, uh, which was uh, caused by Vincent in his yellow house, was donated to the Courtauld Gallery in the the 1950s, but was stolen in 1981. The thief probably had no idea that he'd taken a priceless uh, uh, print once owned by Van Gogh. And without this... um, provenance, its financial value would have been very modest. If any readers know of the present location of the print, uh, do get in touch. (laughs) Uh, Yes, very likely. Uh, The self-portrait of the National Gallery of Art in Washington uh, was one of Van Gogh's final depictions of himself dating from September 1889 when he was living at the asylum just outside Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. It was donated in 1998 Uh, Vincent appears gaunt and tired, hardly surprising since he just emerged from yet another mental attack. His piercing green eyes and ginger beard stand out against the dark blues of his clothing and the background, which was originally a more violet colour that has now faded. This time he has shown his undamaged ear. The artist must have peered into a mirror with profound concentration, probing his um, psychological and his... uh, physical condition towards the end of what had been an extremely difficult year. Significantly, he has once again included his palette and brushes. Uh, This self-portrait sent out his message to his doctor, fellow asylum inmates, brother Tao and most importantly to himself. Having emerged from another crisis, he was absolutely determined to pursue his vacation as an artist. Vincent did indeed do so with great effort and artistic success, although this went unrecognised in his lifetime. But tragedy would strike, and less than a year later, he died by his own hand, which I think we've uh, we've proved. Um, what do they reveal, Sir Van Gogh's uh, um, uh, self-portraits? Uh, well, uh, it's uh, there's thirteen uh, portraits. We've only spoken about or uh, well, half a dozen of them, uh, but to give a greater insight into Van Gogh's por- powerful self-portraits. We will see their evolution hanging on the walls, not just in reproduction, the real things. As Vincent once wrote to Theo, "It is difficult to know yourself, but it isn't easy to paint yourself either." How true that is! If you've ever tried to do your self-portrait, you're the last person to see the real, the real you. So um, uh, that's a, a, a pretty well. We've had a, a, a pretty <laughs> solid sort of Van Gogh. Um, Uh, program today, and I'm very pleased we did, because there are many things that I've learned in uh, recent times that I uh, hadn't known before, and so I have to say uh, that um, he is a remarkable artist, he was a remarkable artist, and the poor guy never got uh, any uh, recognition really in his own lifetime, it was a constant struggle uh, from beginning to end, and uh, I have some sympathy for the fact that he never, uh, that he lost his mind, and um, ended up by committing suicide. So I think we could very well end with Mona Lisa at this point. Not Mona Lisa. What am I talking about? No, Starry Night. Of course, yes, yeah, Starry Night. Here we go. Starry, starry night.
0: Starry, starry night Flaming flowers that brightly blaze Swirling clouds in violet haze Reflect in Vincent's eyes of china blue Colors changing hue Morning fields of amber grain Weathered faces lined soothed beneath the artist's loving hand now I understand what you tried to say to me and how you suffered for your sanity and how you tried to set them free they would not listen they did not know how perhaps they'll listen silver thorn, a bloody rose Lie crushed and broken on the virgin snow Now I think I know What you tried to say to me and how you suffered for your sanity To how you tried to set them free they would not listen, they're not listening still. Perhaps they never will.
1: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New
0: Zealand On the Air.